Content warning. The following episode will be covering some pretty heavy themes, particularly scenes of infanticide. So if that's something that's bothering or triggering to you, go ahead and skip this episode, and I hope I'll see you in the next one. Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 5 of Triangles and Crescents. To Baal Hamon, in great crises, living children were sacrificed, as many as 300 in a day. They were placed upon the inclined and outstretched arms of the idol and rolled off into the fire beneath. Their cries were drowned in the noise of trumpets and cymbals. Their mothers were required to look upon the scene without moan or tear, lest they be accused of impiety and lose the credit due to them from their God. End quote. The passage that I just read is from the volumes of the 20th century historian power couple, Will and Ariel Durant. It can be found amongst the mere handful of pages they dedicate to the entire history of Carthage. The gruesome scene they depict, with infants being roasted over coals to appease a strange god, is relayed by dozens of Greco-Roman chroniclers and historians. As a result, the practice of mass child sacrifice is the unfortunate first impression that we now have of the entirety of Carthaginian religion. It makes us look at an entire group of ancient people with disgust and contempt. How could they do something so barbaric? To their own offspring, no less. Unless you think that those vitriolic emotions have disappeared by now. I mean, the Durants wrote those words in the 1940s, after all, and, you know, the practice of history has changed quite a bit since then. Well, it only takes about a minute or so to find contemporary people passing the same sort of judgments. Let me give you an example. So, very early on in my research for this season, I was looking high and low for any artwork or documentaries or depictions of the Carthaginians. I just kind of wanted to see what they would have looked like, you know, maybe how they would have dressed, how they would have spoken, that kind of thing. Well, I ended up coming across a documentary, posted on YouTube, of course. It was called Blood on the Altar, and it was about the Tophet cult and the Punic practice of child sacrifice. And let me read you a couple lines from the description of that video. Quote, The Greeks and Romans described them as a race of unscrupulous profiteers, grubby merchants, and worse. They were seen as a morally corrupt race, who forcibly prostituted their own daughters in sacred rituals, and killed their own young in an attempt to win over their violent gods. But were they truly evil, or victims of a vicious propaganda campaign? End quote. Geez, guys, I mean, maybe things aren't this black and white. And I really don't like that race talk that's thrown in there as well. But the comments of that video don't seem to think so. It's chock full of people decrying the Carthaginians and Phoenicians as evil. And, of course, there just have to be a couple anti-Semitic statements sprinkled in there because, you know, the Canaanites were mentioned so much in the Hebrew Bible. And even though that disposition really makes no sense because it was the Hebrews who were writing about these practices of the Canaanites and they had their own separate identity going on, a bigot is just going to take any excuse they can get to be a bigot. Now this was a disappointing but also an unsurprising discovery. 
In my mind, it really reinforces the importance of history and the humanities to being a well-rounded person. Truly looking closely at history shows you that very rarely can people be written off as pure evil. Oftentimes, the practices of the past that seem the most barbaric, backwards, or bizarre to us can simply be traced back to the environment that one was born into. When you read history, you have to remember that you could just have easily been one of those human beings that your first instinct is to demonize. It requires both empathy and cultural neutrality. And I think it's high time we look at these people using the historical method to treat them with the dignity that they deserve but almost never get. So in this episode, we're going to be addressing these difficult and disturbing questions about child sacrifice from a less sensational, more grounded perspective. Moreover, there is so, so, so much more to the Phoenician and Carthaginian religions than just the frickin' Tophet cult. These people worshipped a multitude of diverse and fascinating gods, which our lack of oral tradition or religious literature barely do any justice to. I hope that despite the challenges of limited sources, we can open our minds up to a nearly forgotten religion that was once a cornerstone of reality to hundreds of thousands of people across three different continents. And a quick disclaimer before we get into things. This episode is a brief digression from the chronological narrative approach that we've been taking with the history of Carthage so far. Rest assured, though, we'll be getting back into the Sicilian Wars, the Magnet Dynasty, and much, much more next episode. For now, though, let's dive right into this awe-inspiring slice of Carthaginian life, shall we? The roots of Punic religion, the rituals, beliefs, practices, and gods, are of course found back in Phoenicia. So it makes sense, then, to start there. Remember all the way back in episode 1, which was a brief history of the Phoenician city-states, when we spoke of the Canaanite gods El and Asherah? They were the two supreme beings of that region, but they were far from the only deities that were worshipped. And you may recall that they also had a sort of deputy by the name of Baal, who enforced their will throughout the earth. Now, there were certainly some occasions where this Baal guy was seen and worshipped as one super-powerful god, but things got a little more complicated than that. Baal had all these minor aspects to him, each with their own personalities and domains. So for future reference, whenever you hear the name of a god that starts with the word Baal, just know that that deity is very likely some incarnation of the original, more mysterious figure. The gods of Carthage included many of these Baal, some of which we know more about them than others. To give you a rundown, we have Baal Shamin, the lord of the skies, lightning and wind, Baal Sepon, who we happen to know was the god of seas and storms, probably pretty important to such a seafaring people. There's also Baal Edir, Baal Markad, god of dancing, Baal Oz, Baal Karnem, who we have references to, but unfortunately not much else to go on besides that. This is what I meant earlier when I said that our lack of oral tradition or literature barely does this pantheon justice. Google any Greek god and I bet you can find several stories about them that flesh out their character and overall just make them more compelling to hear about. You can imagine having a conversation with Zeus or Poseidon, but you can't do the same for Baal Shamin or Baal Sapon, and to me, there's something profoundly melancholy about that. Aside from these Canaanite Baal gods, 
There were a plethora of other diverse gods worshipped in Carthage and throughout the empire. Among these were gods that represented aspects of nature, like Reshef, god of fire, plagues, and sickness, Simis, the sun, Hudis, the new moon, and Kis, the full moon. All you aspiring cultural anthropologists out there know that worship of the sun and moon is extremely common throughout most cultures and is often tied to disciplines like astronomy or agriculture. Part of me really wishes that we had more Carthaginian texts that reveal their perspective on both. And speaking of phenomena that are usually assigned their own deities in most polytheistic religions, what about death, the universal equalizer? The Carthaginian goddess of death was named Hawat. Not much is known about her domain or even what the Carthaginian philosophy of death was. We do at least know that they believed in some sort of afterlife, given the layout of the tombs we find inside the city. Plates, cups, cutlery, as well as other household items like razors, jewelry, and ostrich eggs intricately decorated with geometric designs that rival even the skill of Islamic art at its peak are commonly found inside the resting places of the wealthy elite. Miniature faces of gods made with glass beads and glazed ceramic that I would kill to see in person, along with amulets of various cultural styles, usually Egyptian and Canaanite, that probably had different magical properties are often present as well. Most notable are the masks. Made of terracotta, each is painted with a disturbing, impish grimace. Seriously, go look this stuff up. It's cool, but at the same time, it's a bit creepy. Our best guess is that these masks and amulets were used to ward off evil spirits during the journey to the afterlife, a journey which Hawat probably had a role in guiding. But unless we discover some treasure trove of Carthaginian writings someday, knock on wood, we will sadly never be certain. There are two other gods of significance in the Carthaginian pantheon that we haven't brought up yet. Those were Eshmun and Kusur. Kusur, also worshipped as his female aspect, Kusurit, was the god-slash-goddess of art, intelligence, craftsmanship, and creativity. Sounds like my kind of paganism. It makes perfect sense for a deity like this to exist in Punic culture, of course, because they were such esteemed metalworkers, artists, and artisans. The tradition of sculpting with silver, copper, tin, and gold goes all the way back to the Phoenician city-states of the Bronze Age, remember. Eshmun, on the other hand, was supposedly responsible for a much different array of things. He was the god of beauty, love, and most importantly, health. His origins are in Sidon, where he was a patron god of the city, but worship of Eshmun quickly spread all throughout the Punic world. And common sense tells you why. Prayer to Eshmun probably played a key role in Punic medicine, much like prayer to Asclepius, the Greek god of health, did for the Greeks. In fact, much in the same way that the Greeks thought of Melkart as Heracles, they equated Eshmun to Asclepius. Though it might be tempting for us to close our discussion of Eshmun there, that isn't enough to do him justice. We know from episode 3 that while the comparisons that Greeks made between Punic gods and their own were certainly useful for cross-cultural communication, they don't reveal the truth. For example, worship of Eshmun involved rituals using special oils, which were thought to have healing properties. Additionally, you have the fact that he was associated with beauty and love as well as health and medicine. Was this the guy you prayed to to cure your heartbreak or unrequited love? 
Was there some element of ritual prostitution involved, like there was with the worship of Astarte? These may be questions that we can't answer, but they're questions that aren't even brought up when you just say that Eshmoon was the Punic version of Asclepius, and leave it at that. Now, there's something I want to stress about all the gods and goddesses we've talked about so far. While they were all obviously descended from Canaanite deities and cults, the versions that I'm talking about are distinctly Carthaginian. If you were to go research Canaanite records of these gods, you would find some pretty unique differences between them and their Carthaginian versions. It's a lot like how some of the Roman gods, Jupiter, Mars, Juno, for example, were adapted from Greece and adjusted to better fit with Roman values. I mean, go look at the comparisons between Mars and Ares, or Jupiter and Zeus, if you want an example of that. We have to remember that Carthage was not only surrounded by a hodgepodge of different cultural and ethnic groups, it was also trading with pretty much the entire known world. And this left a lot of room for those old Punic traditions to get shaken up a bit. Let's take a look at some gods worshipped in Carthage that were definitely not from Canaan. First, we have a super popular one, especially during the Hellenistic period, after Alexander the Great inadvertently brought the Greeks and Near Easterners closer together through conquest. This was the cult of Isis, who any of you aspiring Egyptologists already know. Isis, and no, I'm not talking about the Islamic state of Iraq and Syria, was an immensely important goddess in the Egyptian pantheon. She was the wife of Osiris, another important Egyptian god. There's actually a really cool myth that some of you may have heard of, where he gets chopped up into bits and cast into the Nile River, and then Isis pieces him back together. The reason why she became so loved by Egyptians and non-Egyptians alike, though, was because she was the goddess of magic. Now, this could be a whole season on its own, but the Egyptians revered magic. They performed rituals, carved spells and curses into stone using hieroglyphs, wore amulets, carried with them magical instruments, and used potions regularly. It was taken for granted, just a regular part of everyday Egyptian life. Isis was at the center of Egyptian magic, and to the outsiders of the Near East and Greece, the magical mysteries of Isis must have seemed fascinating. It kind of reminds me, though this might be a bit ahistorical, of the way that white people today are obsessed with South and East Asian religions like Hinduism, Taoism, and Buddhism, because they seem so mysterious and exotic from afar. And then they incorporate some of those practices of those religions into their daily routines in the name of self-improvement. In this case, though, these Near Easterners just started worshipping Isis outright and putting their own cultural spins on her. And when the Hellenistic period began and the Greeks suddenly found themselves in control of the remnants of the Persian Empire, they in turn started to worship her as well. Shrines, cults, and even secret societies dedicated to the mysteries of Isis sprang up all around the Greek world, so much so that Isis eventually became part of the Greek pantheon. But what people studying the Hellenistic period often forget is that it wasn't just happening in a vacuum. The Western Mediterranean, including the Punic world that Carthage was the center of, was feeling some of these changes too. Carthage, with its empire bordering the other side of Egypt, developed its own cult of Isis, and was influenced just as much by the concept of Egyptian magic. A fair amount of Carthaginians probably would have owned Egyptian amulets or other magical items, and shrines to Isis and other Egyptian gods and goddesses would have been pretty common. 
And you can say the same for gods that were worshipped on the other borders, the western borders of the Carthaginian Empire. Mauritanian, Numidian, Libyan gods that we don't really know about because they weren't worshipped by the Greeks, but we can assume were present all the same. And it wasn't just gods from Africa that were finding a place in the Carthaginian pantheon. After all those years rubbing shoulders with the Greeks in the western Mediterranean, some of their native cults finally made their way over to Carthage as well. The most famous examples we have are the cults of Demeter and her daughter Persephone. Most of us know who I'm talking about, right? Demeter was the Greek goddess of agriculture, nature, and fertility, and her daughter Persephone was the Greek goddess of flowers. The famous myth about the pair of them goes that Hades, Greek god of death and ruler of the underworld, kidnapped Persephone and forced her to be his bride. When Demeter realized her daughter was missing, she became depressed, and all the crops withered and died, leaving the people of the world barren and starving. Zeus, king of the gods and brother of Hades, was forced to negotiate a compromise between Demeter and Hades, where, for part of the year, Persephone would live underground with her new husband, and for the rest, she would reside above ground with her mother. When Persephone is underground, Demeter mourns, and so the earth becomes cold, leaves fall, and crops no longer grow. That, according to Greek mythology, is why we have seasons. Well, the cults of both Demeter and Persephone took root, if you'll pardon the pun, in the later years of Carthaginian civilization. It really isn't surprising why, either, because by that time, Carthage was one of the biggest producers of fruits, grains, and all manner of foodstuffs in the known world, second only to Egypt. But we'll have plenty of time to cover that in later episodes. For now, we should mention something super interesting about this adoption of Demeter and Persephone by the Carthaginians. And that's that it was a literal adoption. The state actually just ordered one day that from now on, Demeter and Persephone would be worshipped all throughout the city and the empire, and temples for each goddess were to be constructed. It just goes to show the stranglehold that the Carthaginian Republic had over religion. So we've covered a lot of the minor gods and goddesses that inhabited the hearts, minds, rituals, and routines of the Carthaginians. Now it's time to get into the very forefront of religion in the Punic world. We've referenced Melkar and his consort Astarte at least once in each of the past four episodes, so it wouldn't be worth going over them all over again. Just remember that Melkart was a heroic animal-taming god that represented Punic expansion and colonialism, and Astarte was a goddess of fertility, sex, and love. Instead, we're going to talk about a divine pair that is far more important than either Melkart or Astarte, the supreme beings of Carthaginian religion. Their names are Baal Hamon and Tinit. Baal Hamon, as you can probably tell given the first half of his name, was just another aspect of the Phoenician god Baal. The thing is, he is mentioned sparsely in the handful of Phoenician records and inscriptions that we have. He seems to only have been a minor god back in Canaan, in whose name some devotees burned incense. So the Baal Hamon that we know from Carthage is a purely Punic invention. That is, he was created by the people of the Phoenician colonies in the western Mediterranean. Now when I say created, this wasn't exactly intentional. It's not like some group of Punic settlers in Sicily or North Africa or wherever just got together one day and were like, 
Let's all go worship a brand new aspect of Baal, and we'll call him Baal Hamon. No, the emergence of Baal Hamon on the scene is instead an example of the Phoenician colonists in the west trying to hold on to their heritage. The farther and farther they spread out from Canaan and Phoenicia, the less relevant the division of people between cities like Sidon, Tyre, Eridos, Byblos, Beirut, and more, all hundreds of miles away at this point, became. Many different Phoenician gods, rituals, and customs were being smashed together to form a distinct culture, especially in Carthage itself. But Alhamon and Tinit were the result of these Phoenician roots all coming together. Baal-Hamon was the protector of the city. His symbol was the crescent, found in plenty of Carthaginian inscriptions and art, and he is depicted in sculpture as a regal figure on a simple throne, adorned in a headdress and robes, and sometimes with the head of a lion instead of a man, perhaps some Egyptian influence there. The Carthaginians thought it paramount to their prosperity and survival to sacrifice to Baal-Hamon regularly. In Canaanite religion, as we have seen with the Idrisus of Melkart, fire had special properties. Both the flames and the smoke were thought to provide the gods with the strength they needed to perform their duties, and the more one wanted to empower their gods, the more offerings they should burn in their name. These sacrifices, ritually burned and then offered to their respective god, were called mulk. In Carthage, Mulk that went to Baal Hamon came in the form of animals, everything from birds to oxen, and especially lambs, incense, and, well, children. But I'll get to that last part in due course, because we need to cover Tinnit first, who was equally vital to the city as her lover-slash-husband. In the same way that Baal Hamon was charged with the protection of Carthage, Tinnit was the matron of fertility and vitality throughout the empire. She kept the hinterlands lush and green, she made the crops flourish and kept children healthy. She was the matron of women and mothers. Her symbol, the icon that is now synonymous with Carthage itself, was a triangle with outstretched arms. It's very likely that this symbol contains magical properties connected to fertility and other natural forces, because it can be found literally everywhere in Carthaginian ruins. It's on the bottom and sides of vases, urns and amphorae, on pendants, bracelets, talismans and amulets, on walls and murals and steels, pretty much any type of Punic artifact could have the sign of Tinnit emblazoned across it. But why a triangle with arms, you may ask? What does that have to do with blessings of fertility? Experts theorize that the sign of Tinnit represents a common motif in Canaanite sculpture of Astarte and many other fertility goddesses of old. If you were to Google some of these sculptures of Astarte and these Canaanite fertility goddesses, you would see that the goddesses they portray have these curvy hourglass figures, large chests, and outstretched arms, all obviously signs of their ability to bear children. The sign of Tinnit probably evolved out of those divine depictions. And here's something else that's really cool. Tinnit is still a cornerstone of Tunisian culture to this day, Though worship of Tinnit in name was obviously ended with the sack of Carthage by the Roman Empire, that doesn't mean that Punic people still weren't living in North Africa. They found ways of channeling their old faith by worshipping new Greco-Roman gods that were now sanctioned by the state. And a lot of these more discreet traditions have traveled all the way to modern-day Tunisia. 
For instance, there are cultural celebrations where children make dolls in the shape of the sign of Tinnit. Additionally, Tenneth, sound familiar, is a popular name for girls in Tunisia. Hell, there's even a common expression in Tunisian Arabic, umak tanu, and I've never studied that particular Arabic dialect before, so I probably just butchered that. Well, it translates to Mother Tanit, and this phrase is used when wishing for rain or good harvest. It goes to show that while empires are quite fragile, culture and identity can weather the storms of time. At long last, we've exhausted pretty much everything there is to know about the Carthaginian pantheon. But that doesn't mean we can move on from religion just yet. There's one area that we still have left to cover, and that's how exactly these gods and goddesses were worshipped. I mean, I've said the word ritual eight, well, make that nine now, times in the script, but I don't think I've really gone into much detail about what kinds of rituals we're talking about here, and that's not to mention the myriad religious institutions that were run by the state. So let's talk about all that. The Carthaginians were definitely not averse to building temples and monuments for their gods with as much grandeur and complexity as the Greeks did with their Parthenon and Temple of Zeus. We know of several temples of a gargantuan scale in the city of Carthage alone. The Temple of Baal Sapon, remember, that's the lord of seas and storms, was famous even in the Greek world. There was also a temple of Reshef, often confused with Apollo by the Greeks because, you know, both are associated with plagues. Sources suggest that parts of the temple were encased in bronze, and we're not just talking about statues here, we're talking about part of an entire building, mind you, with lifelike gold sculptures of leaves and other flora. Then there's the temple of Baal Hamon, which we name-dropped in episode 3. That's where those chimpanzee skins taken by Hanno and his fellow explorers of West Africa were kept as an exotic treasure. And if they kept those skins there, imagine all the art, gold, jewels, foodstuffs, and other types of wealth adorned the temple of the defender of Carthage as well. The most renowned temple, however, honestly, it was probably so gargantuan that it was more of a compound, really, was the temple of Eshmun. It was located right on the slope of the Bursa facing the sea. This symbolic, convenient, and strategically sound position was also the reason why the Adrim and the Sufites convened there instead of in some government meeting hall. Inside, it must have been even more magnificent than the Temple of Baal Hamon from what our limited insight tells us. And limited insight is in some ways a real understatement. I mean, folks, we don't even know where most of these temples were in the city, which is super disheartening. You can go up to the Acropolis in Athens, and the Pillars of the Parthenon, a temple of Athena, by the way, are still there. A similar trip to the ruins of Carthage would leave you with more frustrating questions than answers. Even so, that doesn't mean we have nothing to go on. Historians and archaeologists are a resourceful bunch, after all. Here's what they figured out. Because so many religious traditions in Carthage can be traced back to Phoenicia, we can take a similar approach when speculating what these buildings actually looked like. There was a common architectural style and layout to temples in Canaan, and there's actually a perfect example of one that also happens to be one of the most famous places of worship in history. Let's go back to the Temple of Solomon. Now, it might have been a while since you've listened to episode one, so let's get everyone up to speed. 
The Temple of Solomon was a temple to the Hebrew god Yahweh, that's basically the biblical god, built by King Solomon in Jerusalem. You'll remember that many of the luxury goods needed to build it, like cedar wood, gold, and silver, were donated by King Hiram of Tyre as a gesture of good faith to Israel. Although the original temple was destroyed during the notorious sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, enough accounts remain of its design for historians to reconstruct it. The Temple of Solomon, and many other Canaanite temples for that matter, were composed of three distinct parts. First, you had a grand entrance, a sort of hallway or antechamber called the Ulam. Once you made your way through this hall, assuming you were worthy enough, of course, you would find yourself in the Hekal, a large open room where all worship and ritual took place. This was the most visually impressive part of the temple. For someone who believed in the power of these gods, it must have been like stepping into another world, more ethereal and surreal than the noisy streets outside. I don't know how many of you have been in an old Gothic cathedral like Notre Dame, or a mosque like Majid al-Haram in Mecca, or an intricately carved Buddhist temple like Angkor Wat in Cambodia, or an Orthodox church with all its magnificent stained glass. If you have been to one of those sites, or somewhere similar, you might have tapped into this feeling of wonder. Towards the back of the temple was the third section, called the Debir. This was the most secretive area, where the priests would perform the most sacred rituals and reside when they weren't on duty, so to speak. Certain rooms also would have stored foodstuffs and supplies necessary for the upkeep of the temple, like oil. There may have even been special chambers for the temple treasure or religious instruments and artifacts. We can postulate that this Canaanite layout was the framework of a standard Carthaginian temple, with other further additions and styles, of course, being layered on top over the centuries. Columns, for example, in both Greek and Egyptian style, and go look up Egyptian columns to see what I mean by that, became prominent throughout most of the city, so it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that they were included in the temple designs as well. To be a Carthaginian priest, known as a Kohanim, was an esteemed position. Many Kohanim were political actors as well as clergymen, and of course, the Rab Kohanim, sound familiar from episode 4, was a minister in the bureaucracy that oversaw all state-sponsored religious affairs. The Kohanim were entrusted with the sacred treasure and religious instruments of their respective gods. It was their job day in and day out to preserve the fertility, health, and prosperity of the city by conducting the necessary rituals and sacrifices. In elaborate ceremonies that sometimes required dozens or even hundreds of priests, temple workers, and slaves, Kohanim would sacrifice oxen, lambs, goats, birds, and other animals, and burn incense or wooden effigies to gods like Melkart, Eshmun, Reshef, you name it really. But there's one more major religious institution that I've neglected to describe in depth so far. It's probably the main reason why anyone started streaming this episode in the first place. We can't put off the cult of the Tophet any longer. Now I know we've brought up Tophets before, mainly in episode 2, but I think a quick refresher is certainly warranted. Sacrifice is of course a huge part of ancient religions all over the globe, and this was no different for the cultural forebears of Carthage in Phoenicia and Canaan. The Canaanites had their own special twist on sacrifice, where they would burn the remains of small animals and children, or sometimes even live children themselves, 
all in the name of a certain Baal. The most famous of these Baal was Baal Moloch, who makes several infamous appearances in the Hebrew Bible as some barbaric god of child sacrifice. While it is very likely that children were killed for religious ritual in Canaan, this wasn't a common occurrence for obvious reasons. Like we just said, the remains of already deceased children and animals were frequently burned instead. And yet we still have to grapple with a practice that would be sickening and traumatic to witness firsthand. And I'm going to put another content warning here for the rest of this episode because it's going to get graphic in some places. I mean, a lot of us, myself included, get pretty squeamish looking at photos of crime scenes, bombings, or terrorist attacks. There's a certain image of a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer in a bathtub that I know I'd rather not ever see again. Could you imagine being at one of those child sacrifices, watching a group of kids be burned alive? I think at a certain point we just force ourselves to alter our train of thought because the mental images are just so horrific. Here's where it's important for us to use a lens of cultural understanding, though. Although the parents of these children would have undoubtedly been disturbed and traumatized by what they were being put through by their religious elders, the practice of live child sacrifice, when it had to get to that point, would have been necessary in their eyes. It was just taken for granted that in emergencies, times of strife, famine, drought, etc., the only way to appease the gods who could make everything grow again was to offer a mark of your own fertility in return. That's just the insane power of human belief for you. And if you want to say that this practice is barbaric and evil, I guess you're well within your right to do so. But at the same time, you're forgetting that evil is relative. There are plenty of cultures in every corner of the world that practice human sacrifice or other things we might consider inhuman. And yet, I can think of plenty of practices Western culture takes for granted that could be in turn seen as inhuman by our children's children. This practice meant something to human beings, biologically identical to you and me. Just keep that in mind as you continue. So, of course, when Phoenician colonists settled down permanently and started farming in Malta, Sicily, Sardinia, and North Africa, they brought their heritage with them. We said earlier that during this early phase of Punic history, Baal Hamon and Tinit evolved out of this diaspora, right? Well, the reason for this had a lot to do with death and those old Canaanite practices of sacrificing remains. Think about it. The more people you have permanently living in an area, the more people are going to die there. Life is hard. You're out on the frontier hundreds of miles from the familiar coasts of Phoenicia or the cedar trees or the mountains that you grew up with. All you have to comfort you is the religion of your homeland and the stories you grew up hearing. Naturally, when children die, and many inevitably will, this is the ancient world after all, you're going to want to give them the proper send-off. This is why we start to see the early signs of what are known to us as tophets in these agricultural Punic settlements. And a side note, the classification of these sites as tophets is purely modern. The word actually comes from Hebrew. It was what the biblical writers called the hilltop shrines where all those child sacrifices to Baal Moloch and others supposedly took place. These Punic sites, however, are entirely different from any biblical description. First of all, Tophets are dedicated to Baal Hamon and Tinit, especially Tinit, rather than any old Canaanite deities. They were representative of the transition from identification by a city-state to a somewhat shared Punic identity. 
The numerous artistic styles from the East found in the architecture of the Tophets really demonstrate just how diverse the people that created them were. Now over time, what started as a need to mourn the dead and offer to the old gods became a brand new institution all on its own. As Venetian historian Josephine Quinn puts it, Tophets, quote, were sites where gods, family, civic society, ritual, sacrifice, and death all came together. By the time Carthage was on the scene, this institutionalization was in full force. Carthage actually had by far the largest tophet of them all, and it's mostly from that site where we piece together the mysteries of this ancient cult. The tophet at Carthage almost surrounded the early city and kept expanding outwards from there. It consisted of open gardens decorated with steels, pillars, columns, and statues, and of course, lots of these structures were marked with the sign of Tinnit. Dispersed throughout the site are underground tombs that contain hundreds of urns with the ashes and bones of infants, toddlers, birds, lambs, and other small animals. Especially lambs, though. The earliest remains of children indicate death from natural causes like sickness, injury, stillbirth, or birth defects, rather than ritual murder. This was the case throughout much of Carthaginian history, suggesting that the Tophet was initially a special cemetery where dead children would be offered to Tanit to both protect them in the afterlife and ensure the fertility of Carthaginian mothers in the future. They could also have been offered to Baal Hamon as some sort of symbolic tribute to protect the city. Just like in Canaanite rituals, the remains would be placed upon an altar, possibly anointed by priests, and then burned while flutes and drums and other musical instruments were played in the background. It must have been a passionate and cathartic affair for the parents. Remains that have dated to Carthage years later, however, tell a more chilling tale. There are less children that seem to have died of any natural causes, and many of the children slowly increase in age over time, with one skeleton being dated to as six years old, Thus, it is abundantly clear that Carthage did begin to ritually sacrifice its own children to Baal Hamon and Tinnit at some point, though scholars hotly contest to what extent. The most common theory, and the one I believe, is that the burning of living children and infants only occurred in times of great crisis and calamity, and that steps were usually taken to avoid this outcome. We have a passage from Diodorus Siculus that suggests this. It states that the Kohanim thought that Baal Hamon had grown angry because the Carthaginians had been sacrificing already dead children to him, instead of going the full nine yards. Other Greek sources also indicate that slave children were commonly bought by wealthy families when these sacrifices did occur, so it wasn't like no one was upset about this. Yet another example of how no matter where you look in history, the poor and powerless are always getting screwed over somewhere in the world. And once again, remember that you could have just as easily been born into a culture where this took place. Hell, it might have been you that got thrown onto those burning coals. That's quite a human experience to go through, isn't it? Or maybe you could have been a parent to one of these children that was being sacrificed, and you would have had to watch your own child being burned alive. That's exactly why learning about this stuff is important. We owe it to all the people that lived and died to understand their struggles and their way of life. Otherwise, we might find ourselves looked at in a similar barbaric light in future history books. And with that, 
we bring our discussion of Carthaginian religion to a close. Next time, we'll be jumping right back on the roller coaster ride of the next couple centuries of Carthaginian history. We'll follow the Maginid dynasty to its eventual end and take a look at the next six Sicilian wars that ultimately exploded into four of the greatest conflicts in ancient history. I hope to see you all tuned in for more episodes of Wonders of History.